Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 8th, 2014, and we are recording this episode of Econ Talk before a live audience at as part of the 33rd annual Santa Barbara County Economic Summit. Our topic for today is the future of work. As you know, the economy has been sluggish over the last five years relative to previous recoveries. The job market in particular has been very disappointing. New job creation has been slow, and most of the reductions in unemployment have come from workers giving up. Some economists worry that this is not a problem of the recovery, but a longer-term problem that will not go away even if overall economic growth returns to healthy levels. This all takes place against a backdrop of other concerns about the power of technology to eliminate some kinds of jobs, maybe many kinds of jobs, maybe even my job and yours, the long-term decline of manufacturing employment in the United States, and growing inequality in compensation. And given that depressing introduction, a part of me wants to give up, go back to bed, (laughs) curl up with a warm cup of cocoa, or maybe a shot of scotch. But instead, we're going to hear from three outstanding guests who will perhaps lift our spirits a bit, and if not, at least make us a little bit smarter. Uh, Andrew McAfee studies how information technology affects businesses and business as a whole. He is a principal research scientist at the Center for Digital Business at MIT's Sloan School of Management. With Eric Brynjolfsson, he's the author of The Second Machine Age, Work, Progress, and Prosperity in a Time of Brilliant Technologies. Megan McArdle is a columnist at Bloomberg View and has been a correspondent for The Atlantic, The Economist, and Newsweek an outstanding journalist and pioneering blogger on economic policy. She is the author of The Upside of Down, Why Failing Well is the Key to Success. Lee Ohanian in the middle is a professor of economics at UCLA and a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's an advisor to the Federal Reserve of Minneapolis and very timely an expert on economic crisis and recovery. I've asked each guest to give a brief introduction to some aspect of the future of work what they find interesting, and then we'll sit down and the four of us will have a conversation. We're going to go in alphabetical order. Andy, start us off. Thanks. Thank you, Russ, for that introduction. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Thank you. That feels better. I, the, the title of our session today is The Economic Forecasting Project. I actually find economic forecasting Um, just dauntingly difficult. So I'm going to do something that I find a good bit easier, which is a tiny bit of technological forecasting. There are three things that I can say with great confidence are going to continue in the world of technology for the next 10 to 20 years easily. The first one is Moore's Law, which, as we all know, is this shorthand for this relentless improvement in computing power, which has been going on for about half a century. The shortest way to think of it is that you get about twice as much computing bang for your buck every 18 to 24 months, like clockwork, year after year. And you hear, I read in the press once in a while that Moore's Law is running out of steam. Don't believe it. 
I've been reading that as long as I've been reading about technology. And the best I ever heard it summarized was I cold called a really good AI researcher a while back at a session like this and said, um, his name is Andrew Ng, he teaches at Stanford. I said, Andrew, um, how much more time do we have with Moore's Law? And he said, five more years, same as the last 30 years. <laughs> We got a lot more time with this relentless improvement in computing power. The reason that's important is that when these numbers get as big over time, to the point that this is not an exaggeration, this is the powerful computer of a generation ago. This is the supercomputer of two generations ago. So when you have this much computing horsepower floating around, you can do things you could never, ever do before. The second technological trend that's going to continue is this explosion of data. The big data is an overused shorthand, but it's still an appropriate one. The amount of information in digital form is increasing by many orders of magnitude very regularly. We're running out of metric system as a way to describe how much data there is out there. None of that is about to stop. And then the third thing that I can say with great confidence is that the geeks of the world, and in my world, geek is a term of deepest praise, the geeks of the world are going to continue to take ever more powerful computers and oceans and oceans of data. The reason the data are important is that data is the lifeblood of science. We just can't get smarter without it. When the geeks take these supercomputers and oceans of data, they bring them together and they turn out innovations that are already astonishing us and they're going to continue to. So just in the past few years, we've got science fiction into reality technologies, like phones that understand what we're saying and can respond to us and execute our wishes. The world's best Jeopardy player is no longer a person, it's a computer. I rode two summers ago in a car made by Google that drives itself down the highway. These are not science fiction. In many cases, these go beyond science fiction. We need to keep in mind that George Jetson drove his vehicle to work. <laughs> Not going to happen for very much longer. Uh, the geeks that I talk to say, basically, we ain't seen nothing yet. And over the next 10 years, we're going to take these unbelievably fast computers and oceans of data, and we're going to continue to convert science fiction into reality. Heaven only knows where that's going to take us, but the geeks say, honestly, we are just getting warmed up. So the innovation is absolutely going to continue. Now, I can make two economic predictions based on these technological forecasts. One is great news. I think it's the best economic news on the planet. The second is a lot more challenging, and it's the topic of our panel today. The great news is what Eric and I in the book call bounty. They're, the old joke among economists is that technological progress is the only free lunch we believe in. And that lunch is about to get a lot bigger because of tech progress. So the great news that I can share with you, Ross asked for some glimmers of hope. I have hugely optimistic views about the future, mainly because the big problems that we face are not going to include not enough to go around. I'm the opposite of a Malthusian. I'm a huge cornucopist about the world that we're creating because of technological progress. The challenge, though, is the challenge of distribution. And the other main economic consequence of all this technology, in addition to bounty, in addition to this great idea of more, is, this, uh, is the term that Eric and I call spread. And when we wrote the book, and as I've talked about the book, I learned that I've invented the world's dorkiest dance move, because my graphic for spread is me going like this over time. And when you look at wealth, 
or income or social mobility or earnings or many things that we care about. I find myself doing my dorky dance move over time. Technology is absolutely racing ahead, but it's leaving a lot of people behind as it does so. And this is the great challenge that we as a society are going to confront over the next generation, I believe. Um, we found a wonderful quote from Voltaire that I'll end with, and we put it in the book. He said, work saves us from three great evils, boredom, vice, and need. Of those three, the need is going to be the easiest to take care of by far because of this abundant world that we're heading into. How we handle the boredom and the vice of people who want to work but can't find uh, an employer who's willing to take them on, uh, that's going to be one of the huge challenges we confront. I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about it later this morning. So thanks very much. Hi. Um, so I wrote a book about failure and how we process failure, which turns out to be kind of the key to, to doing failure well. Um, and the biggest surprise, I think, for me in writing this book was how much I ended up talking about culture and not talking about, you know, aligning incentives correctly with little charts and graphs, but simply about how we process. You can think of culture as like the operating system for the hardware that's underneath. Culture is what makes markets work. When you don't have the culture of capitalism, when you don't have the culture of kind of bourgeois norms, instead of, you know, we thought when we did Russia, for example, we thought when Russia, the, the Soviet Union fell, we sent a ton of Western consultants in there to try to teach them how to do capitalism, and we did law. And we did take away the government and let things fail, because that's what capitalism is, right? Joseph Schumpeter called it creative destruction. You let things fail, something bigger and better and more amazing takes its place. The problem was in Russia, they didn't have the culture of how all of this hung together, and so Russ actually tells a great story. Um, of a guy who shows up in, in Russia as books or hotel rooms, and the guy just gave him away. And he says, so sue me. <laughs> if you don't have the culture that says that's wrong, that makes you feel shame about it, capitalism doesn't work. And so in Russia, we took away the government, we let things fail, and instead of uh, capitalism, you got something that's a lot more like a kleptocracy. So thinking about culture in our own future, because the things that, that he talks about, these are exciting, amazing things, but they're not exciting and amazing for everyone, right? We are already seeing this. If you look and you see what is happening uh, down to working class men and the women who they partner with or don't partner with, this is a tragedy. It's not just a tragedy in terms of, you know, culture and in terms of social issues. It's a tragedy in terms of work because they raise children who are not prepared to go into the workforce and handle this bounty, handle this cornucopia. Kids who are raised uh, in the partnering system that we are now seeing among the bottom two-thirds of Americans who are not uh, raised by educated parents, it's a system where you hook up with someone, after about three or four months, you stop using birth control as a signal that you are really invested in the relationship. Um, you have a child somewhere between zero and five years after the birth of the child, the father will have disconnected from the mother and be with someone else. Um, and that tends to happen two or three times. This was a pattern that we used to see among extremely poor people. It is now the modal means of family formation among people who do not have college diplomas. Those children grow up without the social support, the financial support. One person raising a child by themselves or with a step-parent who is not as uh, invested in the child and is themselves often transitory through the house. That's a child who does not get the kind of education that you need to grapple with these issues, the child who does not have the kind of impulse control that you need to work on these long-term, fairly complex projects. As work has gone away, though, what sociologists say is 
you look at the choices that women are making about single parenthood, and you look at the men that they have available to them, and these men, they're not steadily employed. As Catherine Eden, a sociologist who's done a lot of this work, said, you know, if you can get a job at McDonald's and work full time, you're kind of a king <laughs> in a lot of these, these inner city areas, but no one can get that job. No one can work full time. This is an enormous challenge. What the computers are doing to retail scheduling. This is great for retailers. Retailers now have computers that they look at the weather, they look at demand forecasts from last year, they schedule people on, they say, go and log in what hours you're available. The computer crunches it all together, and then they spit out a shift. It's great for the retailers. It's a little hard on the workers because you can't even do what you used to be able to do and string two part time retail jobs together. Because you need to make, say, a block of 80 hours available in order to get 30. Well, you can't do that at two retailers. So what you end up with is someone who can't do the things that we used to depend on for family formation in terms of getting steady long-term work that you can predict is going to be there from year after year. That said, sociologists are not thinking about culture, which is a little strange for sociologists to be doing. It's very economically deterministic. But in fact, my grandfather worked as a grocery boy until he was 26 in the Great Depression, and, this is, and he was married. He got married at the age of 21, supported a wife for five years working as a grocery boy, and this is not because you used to be able to support the a wife on a family on the wages that they paid grocery boys back in the good old days. He was making a tiny, tiny, tiny sum. They moved in with his parents. They literally cut a hole in the wall, put their stovepipe uh, through, because as I, believe, I believe the Chinese symbol for trouble is two women in one house, or two women in one kitchen. Um, and so they basically, had, uh, they basically had a tiny, tiny little studio apartment in his parents' house. They paid his parents' rent. My grandmother doled out his tiny little salary into envelopes, so much for gas and food, and they lived that way for five years. People don't live that way now. That's the culture part. As Brad Wilcox, a sociologist at UVA who has studied this a lot, says, people in the Great Depression didn't do this kind of pattern of family formation that we're seeing now. So what we've got is a cycle. And when you talk about this, part of what is contributing to that cycle, part of what is going to contribute to that cycle if we do not intervene, is that people at the bottom, with their paths disrupted by work, are not able to sustain a culture of work. So George Orwell, most of you know him as the author of 1984 and Animal Farm, but before he did that, he wrote amazing, sharply observed books about life at the bottom in 1930s England and France, which I highly recommend to you. He wrote a book called The Road to Wigan Pier, where he goes up to the north of England, where the coal mines are already winding down. Unemployment is enormous. And what he points out is that in an area where most people are unemployed, you can't sustain a norm that you need to have a job. And so when you look at the choices these women are making, what the sociologists are leaving out is that the men are working intermittently and playing a lot of video games in between, literally. Um, the women are letting them, right? The women are allowing them to, to do that and have children with them without being reliable partners to contribute to those children. If the women demanded more, then the men would provide more. But the women can't demand more because when 90% of the men in your community can't get reliable work, it's hard to establish a norm that any guy who is not working right now is not pulling his weight and is not a good partner to be romantically involved in. So that's the sad, that's the, the sad depressing future work stuff where we're not raising the kids who are capable of being the workers that we need. Um, the good news is that this stuff is actually amenable to change. 
but that we're going to have to make a really conscious effort instead of just thinking deterministically about the economic incentives to think about the cultural incentives that are being created among people who aren't necessarily going to go to MIT and build robots, but who could have happy, fulfilling, rewarding lives as workers in a society if we figure out a way to include them and to include them in a larger culture that everyone in this room shares of what Catherine Eden calls super relationships, the best marriages in history. Um, I do think that that's open to more people, that the future of work is open to more people, but we have to be much more conscious about creating that culturally as well as economically. Good morning. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you today. When we think about the future work, at least what I think about is how much work will be done, who will work, how will compensation grow, and where will work be located. Now back in the day, assessing those four trends, one could be pretty confident in making certain predictions. So for example, Back in the day, employment was almost a constant fraction of the adult population. So we could predict how much work would be done would be simply employment will grow with the rate of population. And in terms of how that work would be compensated, well, that was pretty easy to figure out because for a long, long time, the average salary of a worker in the United States would double roughly between the time of their early 20s up through, the mid, uh, up through their middle 50s. So workers could anticipate a 100% increase in their earnings over the course of their lifetime. And where would work be done? Well, we had areas such as Los Angeles that were major manufacturing areas that were growing at remarkably fast rates. But now, all of these trends really have changed. So in terms of how much work is done, well, very recently we've seen about an 8% drop in employment as a share of the adult population. You know, where is work done? Well, you know, who would have ever thought that the worst performing metropolitan area in terms of employment growth would be Los Angeles? The last 25 years, Los Angeles has lost 3% of employment. No metropolitan area has done worse. You might be thinking about Detroit. Detroit actually did better than Los Angeles. Detroit lost 1% compared to Los Angeles is 3%. How has compensation evolved? Well, back in the day, technology used to be the tide that raised all boats. All workers' salaries grew with technological change. But today, that's much, much different What's happened is that for highly skilled, highly educated workers, the growth rate of compensation is about five times as much as it is for those with high school training or perhaps less than high school training. Let me show you just a couple of pictures to drive home some of these points. This is a picture of the share of the working age population who works. And you can see that it was fairly constant between 2000 and 2007, and these shaded areas are recessions. And you see we fell off the cliff during the recession, but the remarkable amount of work that was being done before the recession you know, hasn't been restored. And we've had a slight uptick here, 
but we're roughly 9 million jobs below where we would be if we had simply maintained the same employment share that we had in 2006-2007. Now, in terms of who works, we've seen remarkable changes in who works. This is a picture of the share of women working, and you see, um, uh, I'm sorry, this is, a, this is a picture of our employment share uh, that goes back to 1970. So this puts our decline in relative perspective and what you'll see is that the decline we've seen very recently is not just a consequence of the recent recession, but really this is a decline that's been continuing for about 20 years. So the issues that we have in the labor market that Russ talked about really are long-term issues, not just a consequence of the most recent recession. Now in terms of working, well that's changed a lot too in terms of who's working. Women, women's, the share of women working has increased by more than 50% over the last 50 years. So 40% of women worked up to more than 60% more recently. And that's, as Megan noted, that's coincided with a sharp drop in, um, in, men, in men working. So in 1960, over 86% of working age men were working, and that's down to less than 70% today. So as we think about, as we go forward, we think about how much work will be done, who will work, how will compensation evolve, there will really be three factors that govern that. Government policies that impact the profitability of conducting economic activity at a particular location, such as Santa Barbara or Los Angeles, the United States. Globalization, which governs who the countries we interact with, we trade with, we learn from. And technology, which governs the efficiency and the way we produce goods and services. And I'll just stop with one last picture, um, which shows productivity. And the reason we are the richest large country in the world is because we've had technology and productivity growth that grows about 2% per year, which doubles the efficiency of workers in about 35 years. And the trouble we see is that this is output per hour, and output per hour, the red is uh, the long-run trend of 2% per year, and this squiggly black line, which lies below the red, is actual output per hour. So our productivity is growing at about half the rate over the last five years as it has in the past. Now, that's got to reverse if we're going to continue to have a prosperous society, and part of the good news is that the technological change that Andrew talked about has the potential to raise this substantially. And all these factors we'll get into in the panel discussion. And thank you again for, for coming this morning. So for our first uh, topic, I want to talk about the rise of technology that uh, that Andy spoke of and his, his book is about. When we think about technology historically, we see the technology has had a big role in displacing physical strength. So John Henry was a steel driving man, but machine comes along and his great skill then becomes totally unproductive. What we see the glimmers of, and not just the glimmers, it's not science fiction, it's real, we see machines coming now in technology, software. Uh, Mark Andreessen says software is eating the world. We see machines and, and technology coming along that seem to be able to replace not just physical strength, but intelligence. 
the driverless car is, is an obvious example, as, as you write in your book. Uh, researchers thought it would be impossible, or it would take decades, maybe ever, would never be done for a machine to be able to recognize the subtle things that are just a simple driver that we do effortlessly when we drive a car. Well, it's here. Um, that skill, of, which is a modest skill, is now on its way to being redundant. Uh, it could, we see professors, of which many of us up here are, being replaced by technology, either by something like the Khan Academy or the, the rise of uh, so-called MOOCs, uh, massive open online courses, that may make it impossible for many professors and teachers to make a living. Uh, it raises the question, what's going to be left if strength and intelligence are now taken care of by machines? What are we going to do? And I'd like us, obviously these are, uh, it's a speculative question, but I'd like to start with you, Andy, and, and talk about how that bounty, which is the result of this technology, might be shared somewhat by those of us who are actually spending our time doing productive things. So exactly as you say, for 200 years, we've been predicting the onset of massive technological unemployment because of the latest round of, of big new technology that came out. The Luddites smashed looms just about 200 years ago. Marx, of course, predicted this. John Maynard Keynes wrote an essay in 1930 called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, where he introduced the phrase technological unemployment. Those folk have all been wrong. And the reason they've been wrong is that essentially innovators and entrepreneurs come along and think of new needs and new wants to go satisfy out there in the economy, in society, and they employ a lot of people to satisfy those wants and needs. So the, the engine of creative destruction, amazingly enough, has been tilted a little bit in favor of creation and away from destruction when it comes to jobs. So the question is, if things are different this time, why are they different this time? And the only honest answer any of us can give is, I don't know. My suspicion is they actually are different this time for the reason you give. Uh, we, we've had our power system be largely automated in our organizations, in our tasks, in our jobs for a long, long time. Now the control system is becoming increasingly automated. When both the power and the control are done by machines, what do we need all the human labor for? I honestly scratch my head over that. I don't know. But the, the critical thing to keep in mind is that the answers to that question are not going to come from alleged smart people on a stage. They're going to come from this very decentralized activity of innovation, entrepreneurship, capitalism, that we're pretty good at. The only hope we have for putting people back to work and finding more gainful employment is to let that engine do its work. Now, that doesn't mean we, we, need, we need no regulations. We should, you know, capitalism is this fantastic, wonderful thing. My point is that it's our only hope for figuring out what all of these people are going to do. Lee, are you an optimist, pessimist about the well, future of employment opportunities in a world of artificial intelligence? You know, the trend, the trend over the last 30 years, um, which is really when we started to see the massive increase in technology and information processing, has been to substantially improve the productivity of highly skilled people. So those with advanced degrees, college degrees, have benefited enormously from the technological revolution. Um, and as you noted, it's really impacted um, you know, those who don't have those capabilities. So my, my favorite example is in 1950, the ports of New York and New Jersey yeah. employed about 10,000 people. Strong guys, longshoremen, had picked up a box from a ship, brought it to shore. When that ship was empty, they filled it back up. Today, uh, instead of 10,000 people working the ports of New York and New Jersey, that now move 
20 times the load. There's less than 1,000 people employed. They're all college graduates. They're operating sophisticated forklift, computerized machinery to do all this. So it really has become a situation of sort of haves and have-nots. And education is going to be central in terms of being allowing people, allowing workers to benefit from the technology that's available. But one thing I would say is it's so hard to predict the evolution of these factors. In 1984, AT&T punted on cell phones and gave it to Ameritech because they thought the maximum audience for cell phones would be a million users. But slight, slightly just a titch underestimated just, just, the size just, of that uh, opportunity. Ju just a little bit, just yeah. a little bit. There, so, are, there are more mobile phone subscriptions than there are people in the world right now. Yeah, yeah, which is literally mind-boggling. It's yeah. incredible. So I, th I think it's just it's remarkably hard to predict how these things will evolve. I suspect that you know the greatest computer in the world is there's many of them. There's you know they're sitting between our two ears. That will still be able to develop technology that makes use of the large capacity of human capital we have in the economy. But again, it's it's hard to predict how these things will evolve. Megan, optimist or pessimist on this question? Well, I mean, if you don't have power control, I guess what's left is charm, right? Is that the the, the great? Uh, well, I mean, we're, we're look, in deep trouble. <laughs> yeah, you know, most of us on the panel are. Is that I guess my role is to play, is for the hippy dippy portion of this program. So, like, you know, a friend of mine recently joked that uh, China was. Uh, taking over a lot of U.S. production to allow us to specialize in what we're really good at, which is obviously artisanal pickling. Um, and, you know, it's a joke, but it's also true that, like, every Sunday morning I get up and I take my little basket and I walk over to the farmer's market, and then on, on the third Sunday of every month I go to pick up my meat CSA, so, you know, and I know the animals have been, like, treated well. And, um, and, okay, you know, but, but you don't live in America. Let's well, just be really clear about that. <laughs> no, this is, I mean... Or, you know, take massages, right? Like, a massage in 1930 was something that, like, crazy women in the movies got, right? Or maybe, like, boxers would get. It wasn't <laughs> something where, like, you know, every pregnant woman in America, I think it's now something you just get a pregnancy massage when they give you the positive test. It's just, okay, go get a pregnancy massage. Um, that, like, these services that used to be something that were for the super elite... Right, and they're all things that you're, and maybe we'll eventually outsource it to a robot, but I've tried those hometics mats, and it's really not the same. <laughs> um, you know, that what people like, if I know what is the most important thing after we've been fed, after we've been sheltered and warm or whatever, what do we like? We like interacting with other people and feeling happy and loved, right? So um, we like feeling people being nice to us. We like feeling special. We like having other people, you know, call us. Miss McArdle and give us a cup of herbal tea and ask us how our, you know, whether we want our feet massaged. We like all, of, I mean, maybe not the men in the audience so much, but you know, you guys have golf. Um, it's <laughs> that, that, that we like those experiences of having other people treat us well. Um, okay, but, and, but think of your last 10 service interactions with another human being. Uh -huh. How many of them left you with that warm chamomile tea feeling? Well, you know, I mean, at some level, most of them, actually. I mean, service in America, especially if you've lived abroad, is amazing, right? In Britain, they practically, okay, that's like, the wrong benchmark. <laughs> that's a terrible benchmark. Well, the French, I wouldn't, I'm not sure I would, I would put the French up against the, either. Um, the, you know... Actually, mostly it is nice. Most oh, come shop on. people you, are nice to me. Did you waft through a, 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 a sea of pleasant experiences in the airports on your way here? 
If so, I want to travel that, with you. That's an outlier. No, it's, that, it, no. no it is an outlier. No, because when, you it's call not, up, when you call up Comcast, when you go, when you go also through the air... Also an outlier. These no, are all, is, no, <laughs> these are, no, no, these are the service economy. No, these you are pick, not outliers. You've picked the example of the places in America where there's very little competition due to regulation and mono government monopoly. That's when true. there's competition... So, well, in fact, like McDonald's people are... are very nice to me. They're and they asked me if I want something else, and was I satisfied with my order? And like, I mean, you know, Would companies you like are now emailing me to find out if I like something that I bought from them that I like spent two minutes consuming and never thought about again. Um, that actually, I think that there's more room for those sorts of things for haircuts and stuff that mm -hmm. like women didn't used to do. Used to perm your hair at home. My great aunts all permed their hair at home. Now who would do? I mean, no one would perm their hair, thank God. But like. Um, <laughs> Wait, ex explain this hair concept. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a visual joke for those of you listening at home. You'll just have to get the, uh, more, the video version. More on. and more people are getting services yep. provided yep. to them. Even people who are, you know, you go and you work 10 hours providing hair services, and then on the weekend you go and get... Uh, and, and get a massage because you're tired. And, you I mean, I'm, I'm pushing back, but you're absolutely right. And the weird thing that happened in America, one of the weird things that happened over the past 30 or 40 years that really no one was anticipating is exactly the rise of these service jobs. And they, they came on us in huge volume. They have actually helped maintain the wage and the unemployment levels of, at the lowest levels of skill and education of the country. The main problem is they're at the lowest levels of skill, education, and pay in the country. So these are, these are great. These jobs exist. I, I completely agree with you. They don't look like ladders toward that classic middle-class prosperity in a lot of cases. Well, I think, for exactly the reasons that you outlined. I think that this is the giant challenge that we face, is that we still in a lot of ways, maintain the attitude about those service jobs, that what they are, I mean, part of it is just a sheer supply-demand thing. We have a huge oversupply of people who are not getting absorbed by the manufacturing sector and are transitioning, especially working-class men, as I was talking about, they're transitioning very uneasily yep. into the service economy. Um, but that said, I mean, you know, lawyers are service people, doctors, you know, there's lots of stuff in the service economy that doesn't have to be low prestige because it's a service job. So part of, to go back to the hippy-dippy portion of the program, um, is that a lot of this is how we treat those jobs and how we view them. Do we say, because yes, in 1930, if you were a manicurist, right, the people you were manicuring were extremely rich people and you went home to your cold water flat in Brooklyn. But it doesn't, we don't have to view these jobs that way, and that's a cultural choice that we are making. Um, you know, I think middle class is going to be, we're going to have to rethink what the middle class is in, the, in these contexts and what these jobs mean, but I don't think it's inherently a feature of these jobs that they involve low pay and misery. Lee, want to weigh in? I mean, this discussion really is kind of pushing us towards the idea of the jobs that will exist will depend upon what, what people want. What society wants is going to be produced, and the reason we have so many more of these service sector jobs is because it's, be, it's getting cheaper to produce these type of service sector jobs and because the incomes that we now have, a lot bigger share of the population can now choose to have a massage or manicure it's, as opposed to 50 years ago. It's part of the bounty that technology has given us all along the way. It's part of the bounty and um, you know, growing at 2% a year means we quadruple living standards yeah. every 70 years with a life with a lifespan now of 80 years that means you know children born today if trends continue we'll see uh, increases their living by a factor of five 
and that's all made possible by, by technology. Even a, a one percentage point increase from 2% to 3% won't be a factor of five, it'll be closer to a factor of 10. So yep. the possibilities are just enormous. Yep. And what it boils down to is, how will that bounty be distributed across different segments of society? And, and Megan's comments bring up a, a, a fundamentally important question is, to exactly your point, how will those benefits be distributed? And when you talk about these lousy service sector jobs, I completely agree with you. How do we turn them, if they're going to continue to exist and be a big deal in our economy, how do we turn them into better jobs? And there are, to oversimplify a huge amount, there are a couple main levers to do that. One is kind of regulation and fiat and a $15 minimum wage, and you have to treat people at this level. Um, and the, you know, the, to the extent I've got any economics thinking in my brain at all. It says, great, you're baking in rigidities into the process and you're going to scare employers away from those kinds of jobs and they'll automate them more quickly. The other route to that is, is you keep talking about hippy-dippy cultural stuff, is to try to change the perception of how we think about those jobs and the pressures we can bring to bear on the, you know, the stereotypical exploitative employers who pay nine bucks an hour and make you juggle your schedule around. Do you have any confidence that we can... Um, whether or not it's fair, let's call that a Walmart kind of job. I don't know enough to know how, how badly they treat their people, but just for stereotype purposes. Do you have any confidence that we can pressure Walmart into behaving differently in that regard? Well, I think that there is a... So, I mean, to start with, I actually think that the, the money is a problem, but it's not the biggest problem, because as you say, there's going to be so much stuff right? There's going to be so much. And the things that money creates a problem with now are kind of artificial scarcity yeah. goods, right? Housing, because it's hard to build. Uh, good school districts where, you know, you're, you're reshuffling the children around to try to, everyone wants all their kids to be with kids who are smarter with them than their children. Um, and those things, yes, those are a problem, but they would be a problem if, if people were making $30 an hour, right? If there weren't any more houses, the bottom of the income distribution would still be living in those houses regardless of how much money they were pulling in. Um, so that actually a lot of those issues are supply-side issues. What I do think is uh, the, the serious issues are insecurity um, and the inability to sort of either count on, as you say, understand what your future path looks like, that this is a job that I can have for multiple years, that I can try to build a career and understand what that looks like, um, that I know I will have this job, that my employer views me as someone that they're not going to fire unless... And that is, you know, Walmart, the problem is not Walmart in particular. Walmart was always a terrible job in some ways. It was, it was aimed at housewives and teenagers. That's who they employ. The problem is the other jobs aren't there. Uh, so I'm not sure I think it comes from Walmart, because retail is just, it has, his, in every era that I'm aware of, it has been a terrible job. Mm -hmm. uh, girls in 1900 New York working in, in department stores didn't make enough money to live on, mm -hmm. and they had ships. A guy, a guy made a ship where it was a dorm for the girls, and they would boat out into the harbor mm -hmm. every night, because this was the cheapest way to stack them. Um, so I think the issue is things like manicurists and massage therapists and, you know, golf consultants and all of these, all of those things, and this sounds really dumb, right? I know that there are a number of people who are going to be listening to the econ talk, maybe some people in the audience thinking, my God, this is like Marie Antoinette saying, well, let them eat manicure jobs. Um, but, you know, I, I think that this is a fact. I'm not happy or sad about it. I, I just think this is what the, what things are looking at. The, the thing that you get, that you, when you want to compete with the machine, what you cannot reproduce is being a person and providing person-like um, affection and, and sociability to mm -hmm. other people. And so well, people want to chat with their manicurist 
And some manicurists like to chat with their customers. There will be a machine that will give you a manicure, right? The question is, right. what will be the nature of that interaction that you're talking about? And isn't it going to reward people who enjoy that? Right? We know a bunch of people. We're, we're very representative, us on stage, right? We're way too educated. We don't have a lot of experience of, of a Walmart cashier. When I'm in Walmart, which I admittedly shop at occasionally, not ashamed of it, they're, they're happy people. They seem to be enjoying that interaction. I have many friends, you do too, who'd be miserable in that. They want to sit in their cubicle all day, working on their computer, sitting in front of a screen, but there are a bunch of people who don't. And they have a different, they have a different experience. The question is, what are they going to be compensated to me? And is the social consequences of those differences going to be, going to be large? Presumably, if a lot of people want to sit in a screen and make a lot of money, the fact that being pleasant is a scarce resource, maybe it'll get rewarded more generously in the future than we anticipate. Well, I was actually the most cheerful cashier at the Love Pharmacy chain in New York City. People would actually ask me where I was from on the grounds that no one that nice could, could be, be from New, New York. York. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I mean, like, and it, you know, so one of the things that this right, who is who is sociable, who likes taking care of other people, women. Yeah. And this is what we've been talking about with the decline in male. That's a lot of it, right? Is that women are willing to do these jobs and they don't mind doing them. Um, but, I mean, there are lots of guys who are good at sales and, and customer service. It's not like guys are not capable of this. Part of it is that the role that we've assigned to masculinity, right, is being gruff and not caring what other, other people think, and that's not a really Let's very good it. characteristic for uh, a service company. I think Johnny Weir is leading the charge into a different view of masculinity. <laughs> I, I, th I, for one, think that's fantastic. Who? <laughs> <laughs> he was the guy wearing the fantastic hat at the Kentucky Derby. Oh, okay. Sorry. Not a Derby guy. I missed out on that. No, there's no doubt, right? There's no doubt that the cultural factors that, Megan, that you're emphasizing for how we greet and cope with this transition are going to be important. There's another huge thing at play there, which is that we consumers might not want, might choose to have fewer interpersonal interactions in our day. We might. For, because the world that's coming is a world where I can go from the airport to the, the car's still going to have a person for a little while, but to the hotel and check in automatically. And, have, and I can choose to have many, many fewer interpersonal interactions than right now. And the question I don't know the answer to is how is the market share going to break down between consumers choosing to go have deliberately interpersonal interactions and the just let me check in over here and get to my room without talking to a person. I, I predict a lot of us, myself Correct. included, well, are going to break over and, that way. And we're already in that direction. I mean, one of the strangest things that I feel we're already toward a, the semi-driverless car is that in the old days, I used to talk to my cab driver. And now it's culturally acceptable that I don't talk to him. I treat him like a robot because I'm on my phone. I'm checking my email, surfing the web, answering stuff. And uh, that experience for that cab driver might be better because he doesn't have to pretend he's interested in talking to me. But again, I think there are people who find that part of the job appealing and there are people who do like to talk to their cab driver. But many of them, probably maybe you and me, prefer just to kind of be on our own. Definitely and you and me. We're definitely, we are definitely heading that direction. I want to, yeah, Lee, and then I want to take us in a different, to a no, different I, topic. I think, I think one issue when people think about are we going to all lose our jobs because machines are going to become as smart as us and they will do it cheaper? 
I mean, technology can be directed towards replacing workers or towards enhancing workers. And the biggest scarcity or constraint most people face is, is time. And the example you just gave, I can be on my cell phone while I'm in the taxi and I can make progress, I can be productive. That's a great example of a labor-saving device. So you can now make use of time where previously it was gone. You're talking to the taxi cab about, you know, did the mess win today or not? Yeah. So technology can be directed, and it will be directed if it's profitable, to make people more productive. So it's not as if technology is, is either we replace people yeah. or we have to put brakes on the process of technological yeah. change. We can produce technology that enhances our ability to remain productive, remain employed, and to produce more goods and services. Look at the Apple Store. I mean, right? They deploy computers in order to enable these people to swarm you and find out if, what, what you've always dreamed of in, in uh, you know, a little tiny laptop or whatever. So I want to take, Lee, I want to take your comment and take us in a, in a slightly different direction of how we might, how our culture might and our society might evolve to deal, deal with these issues. So you said technology either enhance or, uh, or replace, and I like your uh, dock worker story. So follow me on this chain. So you've got 10,000 dock workers, now there's fewer than 1,000, and the 1,000 are how many times more productive? A hundred in dollar terms, yeah, a hundred times. Too many zeros for me. Yeah, exactly. So it's many, many multiples of times. Then your next thought is, well, but somebody's got to make those machines that make those thousand fewer than a thousand workers more productive. But of course, those machines are now made by other machines. So manufacturing in America, which it's a secret, manufacturing in America is a booming booming part of our economy, just not as a source of employment. So we make a lot more stuff with a lot fewer people. So you say, well, that can't solve the problem. But then you think, well, but someone's got to design those really smart machines. Sure. And then we get to sort of the real scarcity that gets rewarded. And then you start thinking, well, how many people can be involved in the creation of smart machines? And of course, there's an enormous move, mainly by people who are already in the field, to encourage kids to learn how to code to become more computer savvy. Obviously it's happening, it's not a, you don't need a policy change to do that. People are obviously growing in their ability to do that. So I want to shift this to education. Let's talk about where we think the education system might be heading, what's holding it back that will let people prepare for perhaps a very different world. Megan, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think that, you know, one of the problems with education is one of the problems with healthcare is that unlike other issues, you know, you stick a person in one side of the system and they come out the other and they get a good job or they live or die if they get into the hospital. And it's hard to know whether that's because you took someone who was conscientious and hardworking and really bright uh, or because the system is good. And so, you know, one of the things that you see even in the old line unions like uh, the operators union, Right, is that they can't, they're desperate for people because they need people who can do high school math. And those people go to college and they don't want to be operators of, I mean, these are good jobs. They pay really well, great benefits, um, better than a lot of college students who are ending up in Starbucks. But the, the college student who ends up in Starbucks, they, de they want the option value of being a college graduate and so they never become an operating engineer. And so you see this in a lot of these, these uh, unions that require skilled workers is that they can't get them because no one wants to do blue collar work. And at the same time, people are working in Starbucks and waiting for their big break as, as some sort of white collar worker. Um, can we produce more people who are good at high school math and so forth? It's hard to know. I mean, you know, when you look at these studies, it's really discouraging. It's discouraging how little early childhood interventions do. It is discouraging 
um, how bad a kid, how badly a child who goes into a high poverty school does, and how low the graduation rates, and how nothing we have done in 30 or 40 years barely budges the the mark. And when we do find someone, it's usually a good principal, a good collection of teachers who makes a difference. We can't replicate it. We, you know, you. you I believe that there are great principals who can make a difference. I also believe that there doesn't seem to be a way to teach other people how to be that great principal. And so I think that education, if we could educate people in the way that we would ideally like, would help.、Um, on the other hand, I, I would also say there's kind of a myth of the STEM shortage, right? Is that like STEM being science, science technology, technology engineering. engineering, and math?、Um, is that in fact, in a lot, you look at, for example, pharmaceutical researchers, right? I mean, these guys are getting devastated. By all the layoffs in pharma, and nonetheless, there are lots of kids being encouraged to go major in chemistry because it's a great job to have when you get out.、Um, that in a lot of industry, in a lot of fields, there doesn't actually seem to be an undersupply. A lot of the undersupply that you see in all of these fields is that employers competing with China can't afford to pay what people want in order to bring their skills to that employer, and so you know what we. Don't have exactly as a mismatch. What we have is a, a, a mismatch between people who want to make forty thousand dollars a year and, and be a、uh, you know college, highly college educated chemist for a, a company, and that's what they can afford to pay and compete with China. It's it's really really tricky. I think. Lee, so for for our generation, I think public education worked pretty well. So I mean, we 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 had a foundation where we could go out and succeed、uh, if we had the ambition and we tried hard. I think that for a large number of children today, I think that's that's a more difficult that's a more difficult challenge.、Um, and when you look at international comparisons across across、uh, student achievement, it's it's depressing. So about one, only about one third of our kids are what's termed as proficient in science and math,、um, and it's not a particularly high bar compared to seventy percent proficiency rates in Japan and Korea. And in our poorest states, such as Mississippi, New Mexico, proficiency rates are comparable to Croatia and Kazakhstan. I mean, very poor countries that just don't have the resources to develop、uh, or to, to devote to education. So, we have to make substantial changes in the quality of education. And do you have a good and, sense of why the wheels came off sometime between when you were getting educated and today? You know, there's been a lot of research done on the impact of teachers and the quality of teachers, and、um, you know, so our colleague at Stanford, Rick Hanischek, has done some research、uh, looking at the impact of teachers and what would happen if, say, the poorest performing teachers were taken out of the classroom, and what and what you put back in was roughly the average quality,、yep. and、uh, the results are remarkable. So, for example, just for、uh, kindergarten. The importance of a good kindergarten teacher compared to a poor kindergarten teacher is about four hundred thousand dollars in terms of lifetime income,、um, in terms of providing a foundation to motivate a child to get them on a path of learning. And I think one aspect of education that sometimes is not discussed enough is that to allow us to succeed in the world we have today and the technological world we have tomorrow, is we have to be adaptable. We have to be able to learn、mm-hmm. new tasks, new activities, and. Rote learning, which is sometimes common in、uh, in our education system, is exactly the wrong approach. <laughs> Rote learning means you cannot be creative, you cannot adapt, you can't learn new things.、Um, so, teacher reform, I think, is a、yeah. is a major issue.、Um, I think I think more and more people are, are understanding that increasing competition in schools is an important factor, and and I, I hope we see that as we go forward. Annie. 
I, your story reminds me, I was on stage a while back debating with Peter Thiel, who's a legendarily good um, venture cap investor, entrepreneur, and he's got some fairly far-right ideas, but he said something that I found really um, interesting. He said, we all agree that, that critical, critical thinking is an is a incredibly important skill for people to have. I don't think anyone who thinks they're teaching critical thinking, has, who labels what they're doing teaching critical thinking, is actually doing anything like teaching critical thinking. So the question then becomes exactly how do you instill these kinds of skills that you're talking about, this flexibility, this ability to learn new stuff over the course of a career or a life. This is a great big deal. My, my really unscientific, idiosyncratic answer is uh, I was a Montessori kid, and I'm so grateful for that experience because it really did teach me that the world is an interesting place and my job is to go poke at it. There's a thing called the Montessori Mafia in the high-tech industry. It turns out that Jeff Bezos of Amazon, both of the Google founders, Jimmy Wales of Wikipedia, th these people were all Montessori kids. So I think there is something about that early childhood flavor of this hippy-dippy educational system that means something. But let's go test that with data. Like you say, your colleague and Raj Chetty at Harvard have done that amazing work to help us understand that how bad a bad teacher is and how much better even an average teacher is. They did that because we have data over a long period yes. of time on these issues now. Let's continue to gather the data. With education, there is no shortage of theories about what worked. There's a big shortage of really serious data and research about what's worked out. So let's turn the dial up on that. Yeah, the real question is, uh, is it really the case that Andrew McAfee, Sergey Brin, and Jeff Bezos were transformed by the Montessori School. Yeah. And, and we were all but hopeless wrecks without it. Exactly. It's hard. It's hard. Well, I, I'd say it, not only is it hard to know, it's maybe impossible to know. The data is very difficult to use in a way that would allow us to tease I, out. I don't think we have enough separated at birth identical twins. That's the problem. One of whom went to Montessori and exactly. one of whom we went to like, We could fix that problem. We can fix now. that. Let's that's get some little, identical that's twins. That's some social engineering for you. <laughs> So let's. So we, we all agree that the education system could do a better job. I think the the challenge is uh, how do we get there from here? And Lee, you mentioned more competition, better teacher quality. Uh, what are your thoughts on how we might uh, have a better education system for preparing people for that world of work? In particular, is it really how important is it? I mean, I like to think about the fact that we're we have states where people are being educated equivalent to some very poor countries, and yet somehow we do pretty well. And I think the reason we do pretty well is there's a small number of people who manage to transform the world and lift us up. Those are the Andrew McAfee's, Jeff Bezos, and, et cetera. And we're magnets for the smart, tenacious, entrepreneurial people from all around from the all world. From all over the world, yeah. So what, if education does make a difference, and I'm somewhat skeptical, I'm Rick Hanischek's been a guest on, on Econ Talk and talked about that work and defended it, but I'm somewhat skeptical of that transformative power because they so, see so many other things going on. But to the extent that it is, what are the key things that we ought to be doing to let that happen or to cause it to happen? Well, I mean, if you, when you look in the classroom now, um, as, as you, know, you and I have gone through secondary school, post-secondary school, graduate programs, I mean, I think what we see is how important peer group learning is, mm -hmm. peer group effects are. And a big difference between when we went to school and I think school now is that class size has gone up from, you know, 20 when we were kids up to 30 and perhaps higher in some schools. And as you get large class sizes, you have a breakdown in peer effects because the chance of having a disruptive kid or more than one disruptive kid is much higher. Um, 
And from the standpoint of research on peer effects, having that continue as a smooth process through primary school and secondary school, my, my guess is that that could be very important, as opposed to kids that are sitting in a classroom saying, I'm not getting stimulated, I'm not really seeing what's being talked about, the kid next to me is being disruptive, and then you start to lose the kid. Um, so, as you point out, research is difficult in this area because control groups are, are, are hard to yeah. come up with. But, uh, I mean, based on my own observation is, is, is teaching for 20 years, I see these peer effects as being incredibly mm -hmm. important. But when you talk about rising classroom size, in, in the public schools of America, for a long time, the trend was smaller. The, the teachers' unions fought, argued that, I think incorrectly, but you're sort of disagreeing, argued, I think incorrectly, that smaller classroom size was the key to better education, which of course was a way to justify increasing the size of the, of the, number, of the number of teachers on staff. Uh, two counterpoints, two, two, two issues to think about. So one, I think we, we tried that experiment. It, it didn't work very well, as far as I can tell. We don't, I mean, let's say it differently. There's no evidence that it worked well. But the next thing I think about is that the move toward technology toward the virtual classroom certainly gets rid of those peer struggles to get those peer benefits you're talking about. You're sitting in a classroom with 150,000 people around the world with the, with the best professor in the world, but you're not interacting in the way that you used to in a great classroom before. That, so, well, no, no, that's only one option for how you do um, massive open online education. Another option is that you would go listen to that superstar teacher and then come together in a physical space with peers, with a coach. maybe with a coach, yeah. you flip the classroom that way. So I, I don't believe it's an either or choice at all. What I do believe is that the technology does give you access to these superstar educators, does give you the ability to personalize the education. So if the kid's not getting polynomials, you can back up and throw more polynomials Correct. at her. And it also instruments the whole process, so we start to get a huge amount of data about what's working and what's not. And bravo. Yeah, Megan? Well, I, mean, I think that uh, the, the possibility is that is one of the really exciting places is, yeah, the, the, the technology can pinpoint exactly where you're failing. And instead of, I mean, video games are actually really good at this, yeah. right? You, you, now, it used to be that you had to play 97 levels of Donkey Kong to get to the point where you were going to fail again. Um, and now... You, you stop, you go back to the save point just before you died, and you keep playing. Mm -hmm. My husband does this a lot. Um, and you, uh, Wait, you, so you married one of those dropout guys who just no. sits home and plays video games? Actually, he writes about video games, <laughs> which is... Uh, so, so it's deductible. Work. It is at least, at least yeah. it's deductible. Um, no, I also play video games, too. We're the stereotypical <laughs> geek dink family. Um, so... But you know, is that you go back to your save point right before you die and you try again. And that's incredibly powerful, right? And it's incredibly powerful in learning. So it's just, just go right to where you failed and figure that thing out rather than having to rerun the entire lesson. Or if you're a smart kid, to sit there while everyone else takes three weeks figuring yeah. out polynomials. Um, but that said, I mean, I, I, it has to be done well, right? And this is the stuff that, and that's the hard part, is that I agree, I, I, yes, I think that, Good teachers probably matter a lot. Um, but finding good teachers, it's not correlated with anything that we can study, right? We don't know. We can't, it's not education. Teach for America doesn't seem to have great you know, results and, and so forth. Um, finding those teachers, getting them in the classroom, keeping them in the classroom, that's really difficult, especially because over the last, what we've seen over the last 50 years is the ability to this increasing class segregation of American schools. And so um, the automobile really gave middle first affluent and then middle class and then lower middle class 
parents the ability to pull themselves yeah. away from poor kids. And yeah. so, well, it's you know, one disruptive kid. I mean, there are districts in Baltimore and D.C. where the teacher would be thrilled to have one or two disruptive kids, where you have high-poverty districts where you may not be getting enough to eat at home, mom or dad may have a drug problem, dad may not be there, he may be in prison. Like, those kids, you know, the issue is not that we're, we don't have a top-quality teacher in there. There's like a lot of issues that have to be addressed yeah, first. Before. And when you have a classroom you can't control, which is what the teachers report, you can't keep a good teacher there because it's draining and horrible and they want to go to a school district where there are kids that like that will at least listen when they talk and they don't have to be drained every day doing it. And so the kids who need it most, the kids who are getting completely left behind and more and more of them as these working class school districts start to look like very poor school districts did, that those people are the least likely to get all of this stuff that we do. I mean, I was a Montessori kid too, and I assumed that without it, I would probably ha, see. be living on the streets of New York City right now, <laughs> panhandling for change. But, um, but, you know, I also had two middle, upper middle class parents who read to me a lot and, you know, cared a lot about my education. Causation and, is a complex yeah. thing. It's really <laughs> difficult. Um, is it possible that um, the so-called STEM fields can absorb a lot more people? Or is it just that they're hard and difficult? They, want, they pay a lot, right? One of the reasons people want to keep encouraging so-called STEM learning, science, technology, engineering, and math, is that they pay well. It's like, but I worry it's a little bit like saying we need more NBA basketball players. You know, they have a high salary, so uh, that's not the road to prosperity. There's an inherent scarcity as we know on this panel, of tall people. Uh, and so... I don't, I don't know what you're saying, Ross. For those of us who are below the median, that's, that, that strategy is not a, a productive one. So I, I asked, let's do this briefly because I have an important issue I want to turn to before we run out of time. Is, is it possible with a great school system to get more kids into these technological fields, or is it just yeah. that it's hard to do and there aren't enough people who can do it well? I, I refuse to believe that we've plateaued in our ability to, to, to put people through a STEM education. You know, like you know, early in the last century, we, people thought that the idea of that everyone could get a college education was ludicrous. There, you know, there were just morons in society. They couldn't get there. I, we didn't plateau then. I refuse to believe we've plateaued now. Quick answer, Lee. What do yeah, you think? I mean, we're, we're a math-phobic society, and, and if we make progress on that, we'll get more people who are competent in math and science. I feel like this panel, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back a little bit, which is that like, everyone, on the, everyone on this table passed calculus, right? Every, <laughs> I, I, there are a lot of people who can't even get to the point where they're prepared to flunk calculus, right? So, um, uh, so like, but that said, you know, I, I think the question, one of the questions is, can we get them through? The other question is, if we get them through, will the job still pay as much, right? I mean, part of the reason that won't. STEM okay. pays as well is that... They won't, but that, I mean, that's really a challenge for people who are in the field now and so forth and, and, and for people who are thinking about doing it. Because STEM, I was an English major, and then I went and got an MBA at Chicago. And i got to tell you, being an English major is a lot easier than doing math. So um, if the pay isn't high, are people going to want to push through? Well, that's okay. I just, I just want to close the segment and just mention that, you know, we're talking here about, to some degree, about engineering the education system, what, what are, how we ought to tinker with it. And... Uh, my view is that we got to get out of the way. Uh, we have a big problem. The big problem is that our education system is very rigid, very uncompetitive, and uh, persists in putting, whether it's 15 or 30 people, in little desks in front of a, in front of a teacher. 
and we need some, we need to let a thousand flowers bloom, we need to see some experimentation, we need flipped classrooms, we need people doing apprenticeships and other things, maybe not everybody should go to college. We need a lot more adaptability and flexibility for these changes, and I suggest that our system is not very de well designed for that, and we ought to be breaking down the things that, that keep that from happening. But I, I want to close with an issue that's, uh, we've been talking about some very grand, and it's fun, we could go, wish we had two, three hours, we could keep going, but I want to talk about something a little more short run. We've been talking about a, a sort of long run issues about culture and, and education. In the short run, it also appears that our system doesn't work so well. So Lee made the point that a lot of the problems that we're seeing right now maybe are symptomatic of longer, bigger problems, but we have some short run problems. Uh, our labor market doesn't seem to be as flexible as it once was in, the, in that creative destruction process. And it's not just these big grand issues of technology and matching people, et cetera. It just seems that the labor market's not functioning the way it, it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago in response to a downturn. So one worry that, that people have is that we're becoming a little more like Europe. Uh, Andy, you mentioned the the cry for a higher minimum wage, it just recently failed to pass the Senate, but there's some, a lot of support and pressure for that kind of thing, among economists even. Um, these rigidities that you mentioned, do you see them as important? Are there rigidities we ought to be trying, are there policy changes we ought to make to make our labor market and job market more flexible? So talk about that short run issue. Andy, why don't you go first? Yeah, there are probably <clears throat> too many, too much regulation in place, there are too many rigidities. It's actually not at the top of my list. It's, it's absolutely on the list, but there's stuff that I would put much, much higher on the short-term playbook that we should be engaging in. in. In the book, Eric and I talk about the Econ 101 playbook, just to convey this idea that there are very simple macroeconomic things that, that we should be doing that we're doing a pretty poor job of right now. And my mnemonic for them is, is I have the old McDonald theme song running in my head. It's E-I-E-I-O. We should be doing a better job on, on entrepreneurship, on infrastructure, on education, on immigration, and then the O is original research or basic research. You have to go very far left or very far right before you find a well-trained economist who would disagree that government has a role to play in all these five areas. We're doing a, 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 a mediocre to actively lousy job in all those five right now. I mean, we could stop right here because there's not that many times, I think, in the 33 years of this uh summit or the uh, 400 plus episodes of Econ Talk that someone's invoked E-I-E-I-O and I feel like <laughs> it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty special. Um, I, I would have wished, I would have preferred it to be sung rather than recited, but that, that's okay. <laughs> Not um, by me, you wouldn't. Pick, <laughs> give, give me a couple examples of what we're doing badly and what we should be doing better, say, in entrepreneurship or immigration. Two well, issues. Immigration is just so easy, right? Like I said earlier, we have the world's most, uh, you know, ambitious, tenacious, dedicated entrepreneurial people begging to come here, and we put these Kafka-esque hurdles in their way at, at every level, from education to H-1B visas. Other countries have leapfrogged us in getting a startup visa in place. You know, if I were designing a way to hamstring our economy. I would have a harder time. I, I could not do better than what we're doing with immigration policy right now. Lee, do you want to react to that immigration and also uh, weigh in on this issue of, of what might we be doing to make the labor market more effective? Yeah, so I did some calculations recently. I wanted to see how workers who lost their jobs in the most recent recession, 
how they fared when, when they became reemployed. And, and these are people that are getting jobs after they lost a job in, in 08 or 09. And the median person is taking a 35% pay cut. Uh, it's just enormous. So their, their wage is going from about $19 an hour down to about $12 an hour. And when you, when you look at that, and, and this is something that's very new. So I went mm -hmm. back in time, and this is not something you saw in, say, the 1991 recession or the 73, 74 recession. People who became reemployed became reemployed at a wage pretty close to what mm -hmm. they were earning beforehand. With a sizable number often earning more, just by good luck or something they want to do better. Yeah. Well, you know, and when we, when we look at these large wage changes, um, I can't help but think about the fact that new business creation in the United States is down by about 35%. Yeah. And when we think about economic growth, the process of economic growth, it's not the General Motors and IBMs of the world that are the big job creators. They employ a lot of people but they won't have any more people working for them five years from now than they will today. They'll probably have fewer, fewer. people working yeah. for them five years from now. It's the, you know, the question becomes, who's the new Amazon? Who's the new Intel? Who's the new Microsoft? Who's the new Apple? And the 35% drop in new business formation is, is just a, a tragedy. Mm -hmm. And this is comparing even the, the good years of 04, 05, 06 to, say, the 80s and 90s. Um, and so when I think about economic policy, I agree with Andy completely about immigration. You know, we always, as economists, we always say there's no free lunch. There's a free lunch, I think, when it comes to immigration reform that brings in skilled workers because half, I think it's the half of all high-tech startups, all successful high-tech startups, are founded or co-founded by an immigrant. Yep. And the problem is so cute in Silicon Valley. And that Valley, number is going down for exactly the reasons you're identifying. The, uh, and the problem is so acute in, in Silicon Valley uh, that there's a company called Blue Sail that's going to buy uh, this, this buying an, an ocean liner, and they're going to dock it 12 miles <laughs> offshore and you know, where international waters start, and it's going to be home to about 2,000 entrepreneurs that, who can't get visas, and they will live on this boat and they'll get in a little dinghy and you know go go in, go into go go to land and then get in a taxi and go into Silicon Valley. It's incredibly inefficient, but this is how these people want to be here. They want to start new businesses. We make it very difficult for them. So I, I think that is, uh, and there's, there's bills now, proposals in both the House and the Senate to make these changes. So I think we might yeah. get some progress on this fact. And then uh, tax reform, I think, is fundamentally important. Rush, you talked about we're looking more like Europe. In the state of California, the, um, if, you, if you kind of average up or aggregate tax rates, both federal, state, and local, um, for the highest earners, many of them are entrepreneurs, that number comes to 60%. So in other words, you earn an extra dollar, you can buy about 39 cents of extra stuff with that extra dollar you earned. And those are Western and Northern European level tax rates. Um, and there's less work being done today in Western Northern Europe than in 1950. That's not correcting for population growth, that's just flat out less work being done. You mean so number of hours per... Number of hours worked. In really? In Germany, so Germany is considered to be the economic success rate of Europe. Hours per hours worked per adult is down about 40 percent in Germany relative to what it was in 1960. It's down about 35 percent in France. All of those countries have drops between 30 and 40 percent. So I think Europe's run the experiment for us, and uh, tax rates at that level um, are are very damaging. So I would say immigration reform and taxes are two areas where we can make progress on. Before I ask Megan to comment. That drop in reemployment salary, what do you want to, you, you suggested it was caused by a lack of new business formation. Are you suggesting that that's being driven by 
much higher tax rates than we had, say, in 1973 and 1990. They're pretty high then, too. Yeah, I think there's a number of factors behind new business formation. Um, I think taxes are one part of the story. It's not the whole part of the story. Um, and when I kind of tried to connect drop in salary to new business formation, it's the fact that this, you know, job growth is where it occurs in small businesses. Mm -hmm. We don't have as many as we should mm -hmm. compared to the past. So I think there's just not as many opportunities for people who are, you know, there's not as many $20 an hour jobs out there as there would be if we had more, more new business. And, and the regulatory the, thicket confronting a prospective entrepreneur seems to be getting denser uh, and denser yes. over time. I mean, I, th I think it's maybe, maybe the most important question that, you know, that we have entrepreneurs here in the audience. You know, is it just taxes and regulation? Mm -hmm. Or is it the case that there's something that was very special about the 80s and 90s Correct. that Cultural gave us those types of numbers? And I think we just don't have the data or the, uh, or the record of experience to really mm -hmm. discriminate between those two. I'm a little more optimistic as I see, to me, there, there are a lot of regulations, but uh, it would seem that technology is going to make it a lot easier to start a business. Uh, the, the flip side of that, though, is that technology is also going to make it easier to grow your business without hiring a lot of people. True. This is true. Megan. Oh, I mean, this is amazing, right? You look at GM at the height of its power as a company, right? It employed half a million people, over 300,000 people on their line in 1950. They made half the cars on the American road. They were the envy of the world. People forget this about GE. It was an amazingly innovative company for decades. Um, and then you look at Google, which is, at the, I mean, it employs a fraction of the number of people that GM did, Facebook, Twitter, all of these, these huge growth companies, right? Which is where small businesses create a lot of jobs, they also destroy a lot of jobs. So where do you get the job growth? You get the job growth from a small company that starts small and gets bigger. And that is, those companies are happening not as much as they should, but they're also, when they get bigger, they're just not hiring nearly as many people. As but we have to look outside the high tech, the software industries. They're totally atypical in the productivity right, for but, but I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that this goes back to what Ross said, which is that um, it's true that in the high-tech industry, yeah, you, you bootstrap it with a couple of people and the regulatory thicket is minimal. On the other hand, you talk to people who, talk to one guy, this is a super liberal guy, decided to start a business, um, had issues because of the financial crisis, but said ultimately what did him in was that his inability to know yeah. whether he was in compliance with the regulations, right? He said, like the payroll tax people who handle his, so he outsources the payroll, they would just like tack on a $200 fee and be like, you have to pay this. He has no way of knowing. This guy's a PhD in economics. He's not a dumb person. He has no way of knowing whether this is correct. He has to take it on faith. And this is true. And especially then when you drill down to a business that has any sort of environmental yep. impact, that is an area like Seattle that wants to raise your minimum wage to $15, that like, these are huge considerations. Um, and I think that my sort of basic feel about this is that the United States needs a regulatory budget, which is that every time you want a new regulation, you got to take another one away. Is that, we're, you know... Um, <laughs> Because these things, it's, it's, you know, you have two things, it's pretty easy to figure out how they interact. When you have two million, the number of potential interactions is beyond any human brain, and that that is a key problem in labor mobility, I would say, is the other big one that hasn't been mentioned, which is that there are jobs in North Dakota, and people from West Virginia are not moving to take those jobs. And that's an interesting question there, is whether that's because there's information challenges, or we've created some... Uh, government policies that make it pleasant to stay where you are or too costly to move. But we, we're out of time. I want to take two minutes to finish up here. 
Uh, we talked about a lot of depressing things today, right? A lot of challenges, a, a lot of problems that we have. I want to close each take 30 seconds and tell me whether you're an optimist or a pessimist going forward about uh, the future work in America. We'll, we'll finish with this. Andy, go first. I'm a pessimist about work as we're currently defining it. I, when I look out, I'm in my mid-40s. In my lifetime, I'm going to see a labor-light economy. We'll have an abundant society, just won't need that many people doing jobs. If we play our cards right, we can make that a utopian version of science fiction as opposed to a dystopian one. The, chances, the choices that we make starting now are going to figure out which of those trajectories we go down. Lee? So, uh, I'm an optimist. I think we will figure out a way to get better government policies and make the United States a more competitive place to do business in. I think we will figure out, people will demand to see changes in schools that prepare, that allow kids to be competitive. And I think we'll see technological change that will be at some part directed towards individuals to make them more productive. Um, there's a lot of people in the world, they want to work, and that's a big, big incentive to produce technology that allows them to be productive. Uh, Short-term pessimist, long-term optimist, I think. I mean, the Luddites were right about machines. They were terrible, right? If you were, a, if you were a, a, an artisanal weaver and a machine came along that could do your job and produce 10 times as much as you did, that the, most of the people who went out against the machines probably never had it as good uh, in their lifetimes as they had before the machines came along. And so I think that when you, know, when you have machine change, you have people who are displaced, and it's all very well to say retrain, but in, and people can't. Look, Colonel Sanders didn't start selling Kentucky Fried Chicken until he was 65, um, and he only did it because his business failed. Um, so it isn't that you can't, it gets, but it gets harder. The older you are, the prospect of saying, I'm going to go back to school for four years and retrain to do something else in your mid-50s starts to look like not a very good investment. Um, so that, there, there are people who are going to be displaced, and we are going to have to figure out how to handle them culturally, institutionally, policy-wise. Um, on the other hand, in the long run, I think that people do. We, we're not going to know how it's going to come, but the market will invent stuff for those people to do, and they will do it because people like the esteem of the people around them. They like feeling useful. I mean, this is the thing that really shows through in the research on unemployment. It's like the worst thing that can happen to you in a Western democracy, short of death or dismemberment. You never get over it. Five years after you've lost your job, you're still almost as miserable as you were. And this was in Germany, which had a very, very generous unemployment benefits. It's not the money. It's the disconnection from the... We'll find something for those people to do that will be reciprocal and embed them in society in the way that work has always done for people. Um, but I don't know what it is, and I think it's going to take some time to figure out. Yeah, uh, my optimism... I'm also an optimist, and I'll close by saying that uh, Adam Smith once wrote that there's a lot of ruin in a nation, meaning that we, can, we make a lot of mistakes, and, uh, but we can often overcome them, and I think we often underestimate, as we've all hinted at or said explicitly here today, the role of technology, markets, and culture that is not controlled by anyone, but that evolves to cope with change, and I think... Uh, we're very good at that in America. I think we'll continue to be good at it. I want to thank Andrew McAfee, Leo Hanian, and Megan McArdle for a fascinating conversation. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast 
and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.